Welcome to this edition of DCS Talks, a podcast production of the Tennessee Department of Children's Services. The intention of DCS Talks is to promote dialogue among child welfare professionals, foster parents, and the entire community about ways to prevent child abuse and neglect. Hello, I am Colt Marsingale, and I will be your host for this edition of DCS Talks. I'm joined by my co-host, Anna Richmond. Anna, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Colt. Glad to be here. Anna, can you share with the listeners what the purpose of today's podcast is? Yes, Colt. We're here today to share with listeners information about a topic that impacts individuals in every community, regardless of age, economic Mm -hmm. status, sexual orientation, gender, race, religion, or nationality. And that topic is domestic violence. The U.S. Department of Justice defines domestic violence as a pattern of abusive behavior in any relationship that is used by one partner to gain or maintain power and control over another intimate partner. Yeah, and did you know that 15.5 million children witness domestic violence each year in the United States? Mm -hmm. And that here in Tennessee, 50% of all crimes against persons involve domestic violence? And domestic violence is more than just physical abuse. It's about course of control, which can take the form of many different behaviors and patterns. Perpetrators can use physical abuse, emotional abuse, psychological abuse to control, but they can also use control over economic, and they can use sex as a way of controlling the survivor as well. Yeah, Colt. What really stood out for me is that you said 15.5 million children witness domestic violence each year. That data is particularly important when we think about our work with children and families exposed to trauma. UNICEF says some of the biggest victims of domestic violence are the smallest. And what do you mean by that? When we talk about that, we're talking about that children exposed to domestic violence of a parent is one of the identified adverse childhood experiences, so one of the ACEs, with mm. potential for lifelong effects. The single best predictor of children becoming either perpetrators or victims of domestic violence later in life is if they grow up in a home where domestic violence is present. Man. Yeah. So, Colt, can you share with the listeners why this is important for the work that we do in child welfare? Yeah, Anna, studies have shown that up to 60% of all child welfare cases involve domestic violence. And it could be even higher and just not reported. And because of the prevalence of domestic violence, you and I, along with several others, were given a great opportunity to become certified Safe and Together trainers. Safe and Together is a model that specifically talks about domestic violence in a child welfare settings. They define their model as a framework for better case practice, better collaboration, and better decision-making in domestic violence cases where children are involved. Their name of their model, Anna, comes from the idea that children are best served in these cases when we work to keep them safe and together with a non-offending parent. Colt, that's really impactful. I mean, that really makes a lot of sense. What are your biggest takeaways from the Safe and Together training? I think one of the things that really stood out for me in the Safe and Together model is how the model really mirrors the mission at the department to work alongside families to ensure that we limit trauma and we're able to achieve permanency, safety, and well-being. Their idea of working with a non-offending parent can help us to minimize any additional trauma to the children 
and also to help achieve that stability that's so important for children. They have three principles. So I want to talk about their three principles for just a moment. Okay. And safe and together principle, the first principle, keeping the child safe and together with a non-offending parent. Mm-hmm. Now, Anna, this does not mean that removals never occur, but that we remove because the perpetrator's behavior becomes too unsafe for the child to remain with a non-offending parent mm-hmm. versus a failure to protect by the survivor. I think this is an important distinction. Mm-hmm. And because of the word implies a partnership that we're working with a non-offending parent, that's a partnership with the survivor versus us placing blame on the survivor, which can really impact the ability we have to engage with that non-offending parent. Yeah, Cole, I think language is so important. Just changing that word from blaming the survivor to actually partnering with the survivor. um, You know, it's not failure to protect anymore. It's really what what have you done as a survivor to try to keep your children safe, even with the perpetrator's behaviors? Yeah, so that's great. Thank you. Yeah. And then that leads us into our second, their second point. Mm -hmm. Partnering with the non-offending parent as a default position. Mm -hmm. Because that partnership with the survivor and the non-offending parent is one of the most effective ways of gathering information, Mm -hmm. of assessing protective capacities, developing a collaborative plan to keep children in their home, which was always our goal, right? Right. Um, That successful partnership with that non-offending parent depends on the effective assessment of the survivor's strength and protective capacities. Remember, we always say families are experts in their own. Right. Yeah, this this really goes, like you said, with our with our modeling right. as well. Yeah, that's great. Um, and then the third one, which really stands out for me, is intervening with the perpetrator to reduce risk and harm to children, mm-hmm. which is really important that we engage the perpetrator to ensure that they are being held accountable for how their behaviors have affected the family. In the model, it is important that the perpetrator is not allowed to just leave the home and not be involved. Because... Did you know, Anna, that sometimes when the perpetrator is no longer in the home, that they actually escalate their behaviors and make it more unsafe? Right. Whether the perpetrator leaves or the survivor leaves, that really is the scariest time for the survivor. We know a lot of people are murdered or at great risk whenever someone leaves that dynamic. Yeah, that's important, Cole. Right. And sometimes leaving can be a part of that, but that's not the only thing that is going to protect them, right? right. What we want to think about is holding them accountable for their behaviors. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we know is that engagement of that perpetrators is one of the best interventions to help protect the non-offending parent and the children. Right. And so that's why I think that piece is such a crucial piece and really making sure because if the, we engage the perpetrator and hold them accountable then hopefully that doesn't just allow them to maybe go to a new family mm-hmm. and become a perpetrator in that family. Right, which happens. Yeah, we do yeah. see that. Yeah. Right. So, Anna, what stood out for you? Well, for me, it was really about the five critical components. So in Safe and Together, they have five critical components. The first component is the perpetrator's pattern of coercive control. It's important when working a case in which domestic violence is present that we understand the behavior of the perpetrator and their patterns of coercive control. The second component is actions taken by the perpetrator to harm the child. 
We need to assess all the different ways the perpetrator's behavior has harmed the child. We should view the perpetrator's behavior as a parenting choice. Wow. So you want us to think of the behaviors, a way of choosing how to raise that child? Right, because the impact on the family, the decisions that the non-offending parent makes um, with the survivor really impact the family as a whole and impact the child. So, for example, say that the um, the offender is controlling financially, right. okay, and the, ch- the child needs lunch money, and the non-offending parent is trying to figure out a way to get that child lunch money. That could be really impactful for the child to have to go to school and not have lunch money and be hungry throughout the day, right? Oh, yes. All right, so the third component is the non-offending parent's effort to promote the safety and well-being of the children. When working with a survivor of domestic violence, it's important to recognize that the parent has done to promote the safety and well-being of the children. Many survivors have built strategies to deal with perpetrators' behaviors to limit the impact on the children. So the example that I used before, the non-offending parent may have a protective factor around the need for lunch money. So she may save up change or things throughout the month to really make sure that the child never goes to school hungry, you know, buys extra things to be able to, you know, pack if need be, those sort of things. Right. Or even doing without. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Themselves so that the child has what they need. Exactly. Yeah. So the fourth component is the adverse impact of the perpetrator's behavior on the child. According to the studies by the National Child Traumatic Stress Network, that impact includes behavioral, social, and emotional problems, cognitive and attitudinal problems, and long-term problems, including higher rates of early death, delinquency, and substance use. A lot of those things that we talk about in the ACEs study. Right. The fifth component is the role of substance abuse, mental health, culture, and other socioeconomic factors. Understanding the relationship of domestic violence with other factors in the home is important to complete a global assessment. A lot of times that coercive control can actually be around the issues of the non-offending parent might have with mental health or maybe they're, ha- they're struggling with substance abuse. Right, exactly. And how the perpetrator uses that control the situation, right? Right. So in your example earlier about the lunch money, Mm -hmm. mom could choose to not buy her medication so that she has the money for the child to have lunch at school. Right, yeah. So if mom has a mental health condition and she really needs that medication, she could choose the child eating over her own mental health. And that could exasperate Mm -hmm. her mental health. Right, Okay. yeah, exactly. Yep, and then the perpetrator may use that to control, like look at look at you, look at what you've done, those sort of things, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. So, what other takeaways do you have, Colt, that you want to share with our listeners today? One of the things that we talked about throughout the podcast today was really the perpetrator's patterns of behavior, along with its effects on the child. And one of the things that in the Safe and Together model they referred to is the multiple pathways to harm. Mm -hmm. When we're looking at a case where domestic violence is involved, is really looking at how that perpetrator's behavior affects every part of the home. Not only do we have the domestic violence where we see the trauma and that violence taking place and the effect it has on the non-offending parent, but then we also see the effect that it has on the child, Mm -hmm. how that is impacted. One of the things that we see is the ecology of the home. And this is where we can see the the loss of income by the non-offending parent, 
based on the perpetrator's behaviors. We can see the controlling of allowing the family members to go out to doctors and things like that, and this can have a huge impact. But one of the things, Anna, that really didn't register for me until we started thinking about this and talking about it in the Safe and Together model is the effect of the perpetrator's behaviors on the non-offending parent's ability to parent the child. Mm, Yeah. If the non-offending parent is trying to, you know, correct a behavior or give praise or things like that, and the perpetrator can use the children within their coercive control, diminish that parent's value to the children and their authority to the children, that can Mm -hmm. have a big impact on on the child, or just not allowing the them to ever say anything to the child. Yeah. Right? And have a huge mm-hmm. impact. Yeah. Those are good examples. Another example that comes to mind is if the perpetrator decides to use physical violence as of a way to control and may actually strangle the non-offending parent, the survivor and the children may go to a shelter, right? Right. And if the children and the and the uh, survivor go to a shelter, then the the housing stability is disrupted. The kids mm. may miss school. The kids may even miss their father. They their structure and their routine is totally disrupted. So that one behavior has really impacted the non-offending parents' ability to parent their children, and then the impact, the final impact on the child. So, yeah, that's great. Right. And we know that domestic violence is is a pattern, so it's not that one behavior, Mm -hmm. but that one incident that you're talking about. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Definitely. So, Anna, why don't you tell us a little bit more about things that our listeners can access to learn more? Yeah, I sure will. Thanks for sharing all the information with us today, Colt. I really appreciate that. I look forward to seeing the impact of this model in Tennessee. Yeah. I really do. So if you are interested in learning more, um, we have access to Safe and Together e-courses. Those courses can be found in Edison. We also host webinars, and those are titled Introduction to Domestic Violence. You can find those on the webinar calendar. We will be delivering classroom training in the near future, so please be on the lookout for that. As we close today, I want our listeners to think, how may domestic violence informed practice, impact your work with families. We look forward to seeing the impact of this model on the work we do with our children and families. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us for the DCS Talks October 23rd, 2019 edition. Please listen again to hear other subject matter experts discussing ways to advocate for children and build resilient communities.